All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the important question related to eternal life. Before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can be here this morning, that as we study your Word, we can be refreshed and encouraged by the teaching of your Word, that you have You have decreed from eternity past that the way in which we will grow to maturity is through the dual function and the interconnected and interdependent function of your word and God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills each and every one of us. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon your word today that you would use it to expand our understanding of your plans and your purposes and help us to understand more fully how we fit within the scope of that plan and ways in which we, too, can uh, uh, apply these things in ways that relate to our eternal destiny in the coming kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Now, last week, if you recall, I did a review, as I want to do as we go through a book study to stop and go back over a section that we have completed and to put all of those pieces together. And I did that last time, going back over Matthew 8, 9, and 10 and pulling that whole section together. And there's a couple of things that we need to remember from that section and from what we've studied so far in Matthew. First of all, Matthew has the Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience, about the Jewish Messiah, and it is based on an understanding of the Jewish text. So you have to have a pretty fair understanding of the Old Testament because of the many citations from the Old Testament that we find in Matthew. But there's this Jewish orientation to Matthew, and it's related to the Jewish king uh, identified as the Messiah, the Mashiach in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's translated Christos in the Greek, where we get the title Christ for Jesus in, in the New Testament, and it's related to his kingdom. Now, the audience, the original audience to whom Matthew uh, addressed himself was asking a couple of questions. Remember, he's writing sometime in the late 40s. Jesus has been ascended to heaven for probably 16, 17, 18 years or so, and they're asking a, a double question. And this is important to understand this in light of what's happening in this chapter. They're asking, was Jesus really the Messiah, and if so, where's the kingdom? That second question is foundational for this this study because Jesus came to offer the kingdom. He offered the kingdom, and they expected the kingdom, and the kingdom wasn't there. That's 
this question really is what John the Baptist is asking Jesus. He's, he's not doubting. His faith isn't wavering. He's asking for more information because he expected the kingdom to come, and he's in a prison uh, waiting execution, and he's, it just doesn't fit the scenario that he expected that he would announce the king and the king would offer the kingdom and the kingdom would come in and he's languishing in prison and that doesn't seem to fit that scenario. So he's looking for more, for more information. So that kingdom message is critical to understanding the background here. The other thing we have to understand is that as Matthew is writing, he's not giving us a detailed biography of Jesus. We get more information on many of these events from Mark or from Luke. We get a little bit of an abbreviated uh, description of a lot of these events from Matthew because Matthew is simply presenting these, as it were, snapshots that demonstrate his point that Jesus came to offer the kingdom. He demonstrated his credentials as the king. The people rejected and the leaders rejected him as the king, as Messiah. And from that point on, he began to announce that there would be a new entity come into existence, the church, and that he was preparing and training his disciples for what would come in between the present time when Jesus was on the earth in the incarnation and the future time when he would return and establish establish the kingdom. And so we have Matthew presenting uh, Jesus as he uh, arrives on the scene, the presentation of the king, which is very important because that involves John the Baptist. But John the Baptist disappears very quickly by the time we get to Matthew chapter 4 because he's arrested and put in prison. And it was, wasn't until Jesus, uh, wasn't until John was arrested and put in prison that Jesus began his public ministry. And so that's been the focal point since, uh, about the, uh, about Matthew chapter, uh, the end of chapter four, when, uh, John the Baptist is, is arrested by Herod Antipas and put into prison. And then Jesus, uh, began the proclamation and of the, uh, his kingship and teaching in Matthew 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. That was followed in Matthew 8 through 10, which we looked at last time, where Jesus is, uh, proclaiming the kingdom and he is authenticating his mission as the Messiah through the miracles that he, uh, that he performed. They're not given in chronological order. Matthew is simply picking examples of different miracles Jesus performed in order to prove his point that Jesus was the Messiah. And we looked at those uh, ten miracles that were grouped together in three, three, three groups. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus then delegated authority to his disciples, and he sent them out, 12 disciples to the 12 tribes of Israel, and announcing to Israel they were not to go to the Gentiles, just to the just to the Jews, announcing the coming of the kingdom, the offer of the kingdom, and that people were to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And that must have been a remarkable time because it, this is a time of spiritual darkness in Israel. It's a time of spiritual hunger in Israel. And now you have these uh, 12 disciples. Uh, they went out in pairs, so you had six teams that went throughout the northern uh, territory of Galilee, the southern uh, territory of Judea, and they are announcing that the king is at hand, the kingdom is at hand, and they are performing uh, uh, all these miracles because the power that Jesus has has been delegated to them, so they are 
uh, giving sight to the blind. They are healing the lame. They're casting out demons, and they're cleansing lepers. And word of this is just spreading like wildfire throughout both the northern and the southern southern kingdoms. That's the context. And so what Matthew tells us after completing Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 really is sort of the conclusion to that, that after he gave the, these marching orders, uh, the operation order to his disciples, he said, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, this is the third time that Matthew has mentioned Jesus going out on a circuit in uh, the northern kingdom, or the northern territory of Galilee to teach and to preach. And he sort of abbreviates the statement here because in the two previous statements, uh, he says he went to teach in the synagogues and to proclaim, preach means simply to proclaim. It's not a certain type of of, uh, of oral presentation. Preaching is has related to the content. It is the proclamation of the gospel so that uh, the gospel pro- proclamation can be academic. It can be a, a, a little more emotional. It can be uh, simple. It can be uh, complex. It can be two minutes. It can be five minutes. It can be an hour. It can be to three people. It can be to 300 people. Preaching has to do with the content. It is the proclamation of the gospel that the king is present, and for that time it was proclaiming that to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's going out among the people proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's important. And the twelve are going out, and they're doing the same thing. So for several months, they're traveling. They're going from Dan to Beersheba, and they are teach, they are proclaiming the gospel. Now, word of this is spreading, and word gets out, and John the Baptist hears about this. And in verse 2, we read that when he hears about this, he's got questions. He's, things aren't going quite the way he expected. So I'm summarizing this in the title, What Am I Missing? How many times have we in our Christian life gone through situations, and we're just scratching our head. I don't know what God's doing in my life. I don't quite understand. I need a little more information, and we're missing something. We're not sure what the Lord's doing. That's where John the Baptist is. He's not doubting. He is, uh, he's got a lack of information. He doesn't understand why he's languishing in prison. So Matthew makes this point, bringing into our focus the fact that John the Baptist is in prison. When he, uh, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, the reason that he is in prison is because uh, he was not someone who restrained his uh, social critique. And when Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee, took his brother, Philip I, the Tetrarch of, uh, up in Galitis, when, and he was the one, we talked about this the other night on Thursday night in First Peter, he's the one who built uh, Caesarea uh, Philippi that was uh, named after him as the one who built it, uh, that uh, Herod 
Antipas had taken his brother's wife to be his wife. And so uh, when uh, he had taken Herodias, her name was Herodias, and uh, her daughter was dancing before Herod Antipas for his birthday, and he was so pleased that he said, I will give you anything that you ask. And so under the influence of her mother, uh, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, that's a preview of coming attractions. But it's because of his critique of that marriage that it was unlawful for Herod Antipas to take his sister-in-law as his wife that John the Baptist was thrown into, into prison. So he's in prison. And he's heard all about the works of Christ, and he sends two of his disciples. So there's still some disciples, still disciples of John the Baptist who are following him, and now he wants some clarification. Before we do that, I want to give a little review of John's background, because often the way this is presented, the way we read this, is that that John is confused. He is confused, but he's not confused about who Jesus is. I mean, that just does, I've always had problem with people who say that and, and that John just is confused because if you understand John's family and John's background and how John came to be born and all the stories that John would have heard, it's just inconceivable that he is suddenly thinking that, that, that Jesus isn't the Messiah. So let's look at a few things. Let's turn over to the Gospel of, of Luke, a couple of books to the right. Luke chapter 1 gives us the information about the uh, events related to uh, John's miraculous conception and birth. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we're told that uh, his father was Zechariah and his mother's name was Elizabeth, and both of them are from the lineage of Aaron. So both of them are in the tribe of Levi, and they are an older couple, and they haven't been able to conceive. She is barren, one of, of uh, seven different women in the Bible where the Bible makes an issue out of their barrenness. And there's always, in each of these cases, God miraculously brings life into what was believed to be a dead womb. All of those are pictures of the fact that only God can bring life where there is death. And they are all pictures, ultimately, of, of spiritual life, God is the one who is able to regenerate us and give us life where we are dead. We are born spiritually dead. Paul says we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no life there. It doesn't matter how spiritually alive some people might feel. The Bible says, no, we are spiritually dead. And it is not until we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the one who died for our sins, that then God the Holy Spirit regenerates us so we are born from God. He is the one who makes that happen, but we first believe it is through faith that we are born again. So that's the picture related to the barren womb is to teach that God is the one who brings life where there is death. And whenever we read about a barren womb, as we will in our study in 1 Samuel with Hannah, it often depicts the fact that Israel at that time is going through a time of, of spiritual depravity. And only God can reverse the course. And that is true for our nation. We go through a time of spiritual depravity. It is only God who can bring about a change. So uh, his parents were older. 
His mother's been uh, barren, and the time has come for his father Zechariah as a priest to serve in the temple. And so he goes inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, and suddenly an angel of the Lord, and we discover that this angel of the Lord is Gabriel, verse 19 mentions his name. Gabriel appears to him, and Zacharias is immediately troubled. That means he goes into a state of high anxiety, flight or fight syndrome sets in, and he falls on his face, and he's overwhelmed with fear. Uh, Not too many people ever see an angel appear to them. And the angel tells him not to be afraid. Your prayer is heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. So he's told that she's going to conceive. She's going to give birth to a son, and specifically what the name of that son is going to be. That son is going to be uh, John. In verse 15, we read, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, this is a very interesting passage for a lot of different reasons. But first of all, we're told that he's going to have a significant role in the plan of God. That's what it means. He will be great in the sight of God. He's going to be a spiritual hero, which he was under the Old Testament economy. He's born during the age of the law. Second, we're told that he's going to be a Nazarite. This was a particular vow that was part of the Mosaic law. And as part of that, uh, someone who had taken a Nazarite vow would not, uh, would not touch a, a corpse or a dead body. They would uh, not cut their hair and they would not drink alcoholic beverages. And so that is abstinent, total abstinence for a spiritual reason is only related to taking a Nazarite vow in the scripture, by the way. It's not something that was necessarily expected of, of everyone. So he's, uh, and then we're told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, this is a really interesting passage because it is it raises a lot of questions if you're thinking. A lot of people don't think about the implications of this particular verse, and I've read numerous things on this over studies over the last 20 or 25 years, and we have to ask some of these questions. First of all, we have to understand what does he mean when he says filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this passage is in the New Testament. And the New Testament uses two different words that are both translated filled with the Spirit, but they don't mean the same thing. In this passage, we have that top word, uh, pimplemi, uh, which means to, to fill or to fulfill something, and it's used some seven or eight times in the New Testament. And it, in fact, it's going to be used again twice in this chapter. It's used of Mary just before she gives what is called her Magnificat, her great praise to God, uh, after she has been chosen to give birth to the Savior. And then Zechariah says he is filled, and he offers praise to God at the time of John's birth. Every time you see this verb used in the New Testament, it is always followed by somebody saying something or a description that uh, in the next verse or two where somebody said something. It has to do 
with the the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit in relation to some sort of verbal utterance, some sort of saying or speech or teaching or instruction that comes up. It's a totally different concept from a related word, plerao. It's that second word, and it's uh, in, in English that would be spelled P-L-E-R-O-O. That's the word that's used in Ephesians 5.18. No one is ever commanded to be pimplamed by the Holy Spirit, but we are commanded to be plerao'd by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, whenever you have a command, this is just basic understanding of grammar. Don't do something. You have two options, don't you? Either do it or don't do it. Somebody says, do this. You have two options. It's up to you. It's a, whenever there's an imperative, it implies a volitional decision. You either do something or you don't do something. It implies capability on the part of the person to whom the command is addressed. Now, when you look at Ephesians 5.18, this is in the context of the spiritual life of the believer. A believer can either be, fulfilled, be filled by God the Holy Spirit in relation to their spiritual life or spiritual growth, or they may not be filled. And if you look at all of the characteristics described in Ephesians chapter 5, it's comparable to and related to the concept of walking by the Spirit in Galatians uh, 5, 18 through 20. And if we sin, we stop walking by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit isn't filling us. What's he filling us with? See, in Ephesians 5, 18, when it says be filled with the Spirit, we often understand that to have the idea of content. You're filling something with something. I have my coffee mug up here, and I might say, uh, fill this with coffee. So I'm talking about the content of what goes in the cup. In Greek, I would use a genitive construction. Okay? Very clear. You're talking about what goes in the container. You use a genitive of content. Genitive relates to content. If If I say... You go back to the kitchen, we have one pot that has uh, fully leaded caffeine, caffeinated coffee, and another pot that has decaf, and I say, fill this with that pot. I want caffeine. I need to wake up this morning. So I would, I'm talking about the means of filling the cup. I'm not talking about what goes into it. I'm talking about the instrument that is used to fill the cup. And in Greek, you would use a dative case noun that's an instrumental. You're talking about the means by which the cup is filled. You want it filled with that pot or and not with that pot. Now, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul does not use a genitive. He's not talking about what goes in the pot. He's talking about what it's the means by which the pot is filled. What he's talking about is that we are to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. But what are we filled with? Well, if you look at the results of that filling in Ephesians 5:19 and following, it talks about giving thanks to the Lord and singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to the Lord. And it goes on to talk about relationships and submission to authority. There's a parallel passage where all the details are the same except for the command. Over in Colossians 3:16 and following, all of those results are listed, but the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's content. So what we have in Ephesians 5 is the way you get the content into your soul has to do with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. 
and we have to be in right relationship to Him, and we need to be filled by means of the Spirit, and we don't get into a spiritual state by getting drunk. Now, that's always where people get, get a little bit off on that passage because Ephesians 5.18 begins by saying, uh, don't be drunk with wine, and they think it has to do with with uh, influence or control. Usually that's the term that you use. But in the ancient world, there was a, a mystery cult, the cult of Dionysius, who was the god of wine, or Bacchus in the, in the Latin. He's the god of wine. How would you get close to the god of wine? You would go out and you would drink a lot of wine. And they would have these orgies, these parties up in these uh, uh, sacred places up in the woods, and uh, the various priestesses would dance in all kinds of uh, uh, emotional, uh, ecstatic dancing in order to get all revved up so that the God would speak through them. So they're drinking a lot of wine, and they're dancing their hearts out, and then if they're really lucky, Dionysius is going to talk through them in gibberish. Okay, sounds like tongues. Okay, you've got to understand this. That was the background. Paul is saying that's not the way to spirituality. The way to spirituality isn't through going up and getting, getting drunk with wine. Wine isn't going to get you close to God. What's going to get you close to God is walking by the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to fill you with something. He fills you with the Word. So again, we see this connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the New Testament. These are interconnected and interdependent, and you can't and you you can't go anywhere if you just have one and not the other. So when we read in this particular passage that he's filled by the Spirit, this has to do with the Old Testament concept, which we'll call endowment. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers. The Holy Spirit came upon believers, came to believers. The Holy Spirit empowered them in relation to uh, various specific functions. For example, in 2 Peter 1.21, we're told that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That was part of his ministry to the writers of Scripture and to the prophets is he uh, he revealed God's will to them, and then they communicated that to the people. There were other leaders. Exodus tells us about uh, two craftsmen, Aholiab and Bezalel, who were uh, given the Holy Spirit to give them skill at manufacturing all of the uh, artifacts, all of the articles of furniture for the for the tabernacle, and so it wasn't related to their spiritual life or their spiritual walk. It was related to giving them skill at making the the, the curtains, at creating all of the uh, the walls for the tabernacle, creating the uh, uh, bronze altar and the altar of incense and the uh, candelabra, the menorah, and all of those things. So uh, later on, you had judges like Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, who were all uh, empowered to fulfill their leadership mission by God the Holy Spirit. Saul was given the Holy Spirit to enable him to lead wisely, but because of his sin, the Holy Spirit left him. Holy Spirit can't leave us in this church age. The Holy Spirit is given to us permanently. David, when David sinned, uh, was afraid that God would remove the Holy Spirit from him. And so David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, remove not your spirit from me. Because that was possible. It wasn't given in anything to do with their spiritual life. 
They had nothing like our walk by the Spirit in the uh, in the Old Testament. So this kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit to John the Baptist was like that of the Old Testament because he's under the dispensation of the law in the age of Israel. Christ has not yet come, and he hasn't sent the Holy Spirit yet. So there were fewer than 100 people in that entire Old Testament period that had any kind of relationship at all with God the Holy Spirit. And that relationship had nothing to do with their spiritual life, but had to do with empowering them to fulfill their ministry within God's plan and purpose for the theocracy and the kingdom and the leadership of Israel. And that's critical because when we read this about John the Baptist, he's going to be the last prophet from the Old Testament. And this gift of the Holy Spirit is not related to his spiritual life, but it is related to his leadership and his role as a prophet. Now, another thing we need to understand is is this translation where it says he will also be filled uh, by the uh, filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, that is an extremely strange statement. And you don't find too many people who will uh, even translate it correctly. The NIV understands the idiom. From the womb doesn't mean in the womb. Totally different uh, preposition. From the womb was the only way that a Hebrew writer or speaker could say from birth. Now, in English, we have this phrase from birth, right? That's called a, for you grammarians, it's a prepositional phrase. Okay? There's no verb there. It's just a preposition from and a noun that's the object of the preposition. I know this is hard for some of you going back to sixth grade, seventh grade grammar, but it's really important because you've got to ha- have this phrase. If you're going to, st- if you're a Hebrew speaker, you've got to say from birth, which means you have to have a preposition and a noun that means birth. Guess what? There's no noun in Hebrew for birth. None. So you have to use what's called a circumlocution or an idiom. You have, a circumlocution means you have to go a long way around the barn and say it with something else. So they would say from the womb. And again and again, the Old Testament, they talk about the parameters of life being from the womb to the tomb. So it's birth. And the NIV accurately translates this. There are a few other translations that get it right, and they say, they translate this, he will also be filled from, by, from the Holy Spirit, or uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Now, I have a problem with that, and I don't really know what the solution to this is, because you don't have another example anywhere in the Bible of somebody getting any kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit until they're saved, until they're regenerate, until they're born again. And so how can John have a relationship with God the Holy Spirit if he hasn't believed the promise of salvation? I don't think he can. This phrase probably also has the idea of from an early age, from a very early age, and doesn't necessarily mean from the instant he comes out of the womb, from the instant of his physical birth. It probably means from an early age because he's got to grow to a certain level of development to trust in the messianic promise of the Old Testament to be regenerate before God the Holy Spirit will work with him. So I think that's an important issue, and most people just look at that and go, oh, that's too much. I'm not going to think about that. 
So this is the announcement. And it's a Old Testament kind of ministry in relation to the Holy Spirit, not a New Testament one. And then in verse 17, the writer of the New Testament says he will also, a writer of, I mean, Luke says, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is what Gabriel's announcing, connecting his ministry to Elijah. But he's not saying he is literally corporeally, that means physically, bodily, the reincarnation of Elijah. He says he's going to be like Elijah. He's going to have the same kind of ministry as Elijah. He's going to be uh, uh, out in the wilderness. He's going to dress in extremely rough garments and in camel skins. And, and he's going to have a confrontational ministry with the leadership and the rulers of, of uh, Israel and Judea, just like Elijah did. And his role is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that is a direct quote that comes out of, um, that comes out of Malachi, comes out of Malachi chapter, chapter three, uh, excuse me, Malachi chapter four, verse five, which we'll look at in, in just a minute. So this is really miraculous. That's the point I want to get. This is something that is stunning. Here, here, his father is getting uh, has a an angel appear to him, give him special revelation about his life and his mission. That his mother is going to have a miraculous uh, intervention from God to allow her to conceive and to give birth. That's phenomenal. And Zechariah just doesn't believe it. And his response is, well, how do I know this is going to be true? So he questions this revelation. He says, my wife's too old. Uh, this just can't happen. And the angel says, okay, you didn't believe it, so now you're not going to be able to talk again for the next nine months. You're going to be mute and speechless for the next nine months. So here's another miraculous intervention. And so we know that those next nine months are going to go by. And during that time, six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary is going to have a a visit from that same angel, from Gabriel, to announce the fact that she is going to, as a virgin, conceive and give birth to a son. And we learn in that episode that Mary and Elizabeth are relatives. It doesn't tell us what kind of relative, but they are somehow related. Now, we know that Mary, because of the genealogies that we have, is is a descendant of David and is from the tribe of Judah. And where did I say Elizabeth was from? the tribe of Levi. So they're probably, they're they're cousins, and there's probably a relationship by marriage in there somehow where one person from the tribe of Levi married somebody and Mary's family from the tribe of Judah. But they're, they're, so they're probably second, third, fourth cousins, something like that. And when Gabriel announces the conception and birth of Jesus to Mary, he reminds her specifically of Elizabeth and tells her that Elizabeth has become pregnant because Elizabeth sort of went into hiding. And so this happens when Elizabeth is uh, is some six months pregnant. So that means that John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus. They're, They're distant cousins. And so Mary, immediately after learning that she's going to be pregnant, rather than having to deal with that in the public situation there in Nazareth, goes to stay with Elizabeth for three months, and then she goes home. And when Luke tells us that, he says she stays for three months, and then she returned, and then in the next verse, 
we have the mention of the uh, birth of John the Baptist. So apparently Mary returned home, verse 56. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Then in verse 57, we read, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. She brought forth a son. And when all her neighbors and relatives heard about this, they rejoiced. Eight days goes by, and it's their responsibility to take uh, the infant in for circumcision, for the breast, to the uh, to the temple, and to offer sacrifice, and to name him. And so it comes time to name the child, and everybody wants them to name him after his daddy, Zecharias. And she refuses. She's adamant. She says, we're going to call him John. They're saying, there's nobody in the family named John. We're not going to call this kid John. Why should we call him John? Finally, they uh, made some hand signs to Zacharias. I don't know why they did that. He could hear. He just couldn't speak. And so he, they made these hand signs like, you know, give it up. What's your opinion? And so he asked for a writing tablet and wrote down there, he's going to be called John. So they named him John. As soon as he did that, his mouth is opened, and he can talk once again, and so they praise God. And this is when we're told that he was, uh, he is filled with, with the Spirit. In verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's that word, pimplemi. And what does he do? He starts talking right away and offers a praise to God. So this indicates that John the Baptist had a a miraculous birth and a miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth. And also he would have been told the cousin, I mean, told the stories about his distant cousin Jesus and what happened to his uh, distant cousin Mary, that the same angel that appeared to his, his uh, father appeared to Mary also. And so from the time that he is old enough to understand, he's being told these stories over and over again. And there's no reason for him to doubt who Jesus is. What he doesn't understand is that he doesn't have the right picture as to what's going to happen with Jesus because they're proclaiming the kingdom and the kingdom's supposed to come in and he's in prison and it's not happening. And so Jesus gives him an answer. So what's his basic question? He says to Jesus, why? Now, a lot of you are parents. Those of you who aren't parents, I would bet, with almost no exception, with children. And we all experience those situations when a child asks his parents, why? Now, in my house, if I asked why, my mother would give me a look uh, as if to say, you ask that again, I'm going to knock you into next week. And most parents learn pretty quick, you don't answer that question. You just teach them that you need to shut up and do what the authority says to do, or I'm going to knock you in the next week. They may or may not say that. God doesn't say that. But Jesus basically gives gives uh, Matt, uh, gives John the Baptist that look at this point. He doesn't answer his question. He is saying, basically, I'm Jesus. Take a look at what's going on. Don't worry about it. This is the plan. Just trust me, and everything is going to work out. And so... Uh, in Matthew 11, verses uh, 5, and, 5 and 6, we have a quote from the Old Testament. He is quoting here uh, from Isaiah 8, uh, 14 and following. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel proclaimed to them, 
And then he adds a blessing statement. He says, blessing, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This comes right out of Isaiah 35, verses 4 and following. This is evidence of the Messiah. This is what you can expect. This is his calling card. This is establishing his credentials. And this is what is going to be normative in the kingdom. But we're not in the kingdom yet. The kingdom is simply being offered. And so he, Jesus gives him his credentials and says, just relax. Don't worry about God's plan. He has everything under control, and you don't need to ask why anymore. And so as far as we know, that satisfied John. He understood that, yes, indeed, this is the plan, uh, even though he didn't really understand it. At the end, Jesus says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, there's a great point of application here. What was the warning in Matthew chapter 10 to the, to the disciples? You're going to go out. You're going to find some people who are receptive to your message, but there are a lot more that are going to be hostile to your message. And the point is still true for all of us as church-age believers. There are a lot of folks that we, we need to give the gospel to, but they're not going to be receptive. We never know how long that's going to take. They may, to expect somebody to immediately respond to your gospel presentation, I think is the height of arrogance. Most people need to hear the gospel six, seven, eight, nine times, maybe even more. I've had uh, people that I've led to the Lord after 30 years. I know of other people who have heard the gospel again and again and again and may not trust the Lord until just days before they die. It, it, it takes some people a long time before they are finally willing to be humbled and recognize that they are a sinner. And we have to be patient and gentle and give them opportunities and make our points uh, here and there along the way and not just think that we can steamroll them into the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people are going to react negatively. And that is what Jesus alludes to here, a reference back to what uh, his warnings of opposition and persecution in chapter 10. And in this chapter, what we're seeing is the response of a number of different groups of people to his ministry, and it culminates in chapter 12 with the official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the Pharisees. So we're seeing things begin to build now. We see these foreshadowing techniques of Matthew that things are getting ready to take a negative turn and things are going to get pretty nasty because there's a lot of people who are going to be scandalized because of Jesus. And that's the word here, scandalizo, where we get our word scandal. Now, a scandal for us is something a little bit different from this. A scandal for us usually relates to somebody uh, that we think is functioning at a high level of integrity, only to discover that they're doing something uh, immoral or nefarious in the background. And then that is uh, discovered, and then we have this eruption of, of a scandal. Uh, this last week, we've all been exposed to the scandal of NBC anchorman Brian Williams and the many different ways in which he made certain claims that he was at certain places and certain events took place. And all of a sudden, he's becoming the poster boy 
for the for falling into this trap of lying, and we ignore the fact that there are numerous other po- politicians who are telling just as big a whoppers, if not more, and their whoppers are much more dangerous to our culture than Brian Williams' uh, whoppers. But that is a scandal. The, it comes from a Greek noun that refers to the the, the little uh, uh, trap. Or it refers to a trap. You remember maybe when you were a kid and you thought you'd build a little trap to catch some small animal or unsuspecting bird. You'd take. I remember doing this as a kid. You'd take a box and you'd prop it up on a stick and you'd put something in there to bait the trap and you'd tie a string around the stick and then you would pull, go off about 50 feet and then hope that a squirrel or a bird or something would go after uh, the bait. And as soon as they got under the box, you would... You would uh, pull the string and that stick would pop out and they would be ensnared. They would be caught in the trap. Well, that stick is a, is a scandalon. It entraps you. And so that's what they looked at, that this was something that was not on the up and up and it would entrap people. So it also becomes a, a, a term that is used as an idiom for a temptation or a test. But it has to do with, with an offense. Now, this is really interesting because in, in Jesus' answer to, to John, he is alluding to an Old Testament passage. Now, John the Baptist knew a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, observant Jews at that time usually had most, if not all, of the Hebrew Scriptures memorized. And he would have been familiar with all of the Messianic uh, prophecies and promises, all of the kingdom promises, all the promises in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel that talked about the return of the Jews to the land and the future glories of the Davidic kingdom. He would have known all of that, but he might have missed this one passage. And this is one Jesus is alluding to here when he uses this word offense, this word scandalizo. It's a word that is also picked up in the same passage is quoted by uh, Paul in Romans 9.33, where he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. There's the noun form, scandalon. And whoever believes on him, that's the rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. See, this comes out of Psalm 118.22, which says that the stone which the builders rejected. It's looking at Israel as a building and that the builders, the leaders, reject this stone. And the stone refers to Jesus Christ, refers to the Messiah in context. And this, and the Messiah would be rejected, but he would become the chief cornerstone. Peter is going to learn this from this episode and later when Jesus alludes to this. And he refers to this in 1 Peter 2 verse 8, uh, quoting from Psalm 118, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word which they also were appointed. He's talking about Jews rejected Jesus because he's a stumbling block to them. It, it, it entraps them. They, they reject. He didn't fit their idea of what the Messiah was going to do, so that becomes a trap that ensnares them in their rebellion. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. 
And so this is usually referred to to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, who uh, respond to the gospel as if it is foolishness. So Jesus says, tell John what you're seeing. And then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended or scandalized because of me. And and that is just using that Old Testament prophecy. And immediately John would connect it and understand that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and fulfilling that even though it doesn't fit his preconception. And then Jesus begins to uh, talk to the crowds. Verse 7, he says, as they departed, that's these, these two witnesses. By the way, uh, I didn't mention this back in verse 2. If you have a King James or New King James, it says that John sent two of his disciples. If you're using an NIV, NASB, NET, uh, ESV, or one of the, the other modern ones, it just said he sent of his disciples or he sent some of his disciples. There's a textual variant there. And I think that, it, that the majority of manuscripts have two, and so you should follow the reading in, Matt, in uh, the King James and New King James at that particular point. So after they finish, and there's a crowd there that's been listening, Jesus turns to the crowd and begins to say to the multitudes concerning John. This is why I spent a lot of time going through his background. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Three times he says this. This is his rhetorical question. Why did you go out in the wilderness? First answer that he suggested, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Now, that could mean a couple of things. Uh, just on the face, he could be saying, did you just go out to observe nature? Were you just being a tourist and you went out there to, to, to just kind of uh, see what was going on and to have a nice day, take a little day trip from Jerusalem and just get out and get a little fresh air? Uh, and, of course, he expects the answer to be no. You didn't go out there uh, just to go on a, on a nature trip. Rabbis also use the term uh, the term read to refer to uh, 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 shaken by the wind to refer to somebody who didn't have a, a correct uh, prophetic ministry. But I think that all Jesus is saying here is, is that, that you didn't go out there just to look at nature. Second time he asks the question, he says, what, but what did you go out to see? Come on, tell me. What did you go out there to look at? And this time he says, did you go out there to see a man clothed in soft garments? Now, that word soft has a couple of interesting connotations. The first is is really fine garments, uh, hocature, uh, someone who's dressed in the finest of, uh, of their finery. It also refers to effeminate garments. I don't think that's what the focus is here. He's not talking about going to see somebody who's cross-dressing. And that's because of the next sentence. He says, those who wear soft clothing are, are in king's houses. He's not saying that the royal entourage are just a bunch of cross-dressers. That's not the point. He's saying that when you are in the house of the king, when you're in the palace, when you go to the White House, when you go have an audience with some dignitary, you wear the finest of clothes. When you're in a position of power, when you're the dictator, when you're the king, when you're the Caesar, you don't want people looking sad and wearing their everyday clothes. You want everybody dressed to the nines, and you want everybody happy and carefree and everything positive. And so Jesus is saying that you didn't go out there to see somebody in soft clothing. That's because uh, John the Baptist uh, didn't wear that kind of clothing. He dressed in uh, clothing made from camel's hair. He had a leather uh, belt around his waist, according to Mark uh, 1.6, and he ate locusts and honey. He lived off the land. And so Jesus, again, is saying, no, you didn't go out there to see somebody who was dressed nice. 
Third time he asked the question, but what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, that's right. You went out to see a prophet and someone who is more than a prophet. For he is the one of whom it is written. Now he's going to apply prophecy specifically to to, uh, John the Baptist and say that he is the fulfillment of Matthew 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger. There was to be a forerunner. Not just anybody could pop up and say, I'm the Messiah. There had to be a forerunner that fit the pattern of the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I send him my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, Jesus establishes uh, the new covenant uh, with the sacrifice of the new covenant on the cross. Uh, Even the messenger of the new covenant, whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This is John the Baptist's message. So he's the fulfillment. Malachi 4.5 specifies that this is in the pattern of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's that's during the end of the tribulation, the time preceding the battle of Armageddon. The term day of the Lord can refer to the whole tribulation period, but the great and dreadful day of the Lord refers to that intensified period at the at the very end of the tribulation period. Now, if we skip down to verse 14, because there's a couple of things that are said in between that I'll come back and address next time related to the kingdom of heaven, but I just want to focus on John the Baptist this morning. Jesus says regarding John in verse 14, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah to come. How much more clear can you be? He is Elijah to come. If there's a condition, if you're willing to accept it. Were they willing to accept it? No, they weren't. So he ends up not being the fulfillment of Elijah. That's the role of one of the two prophets, the two witnesses that come up in Revelation that appear during the uh, first part, first half of the tribulation period. In Mark, uh, Jesus is asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah may come first? And Jesus says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. That's his role. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's the question he throws back at them. Then he said, but I say to you that Elijah has also come. Again, Jesus is connecting John the Baptist to Elijah. He says, Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. So there's this element of contingency in God's plan. Elijah, I mean, uh, John the Baptist would be Elijah and fulfill that if the people accepted him and if they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But because they didn't, we go to plan B, and another person will come to fulfill that mission, and that will be one of those future witnesses. And see, that's what Jesus refers to in Matthew seventeen eleven. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first, future tense, and will restore all things. So John the Baptist is Elijah if you accept him, but you didn't accept him. So now there will be another future uh, messenger who will come to fulfill that role, and that takes place in the, in, in the future. And then Jesus ends by saying in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you're really positive, if you really want to know the truth, if you really want to understand the message, 
then you're going to respond and you're going to apply it. You're going to trust in Christ as Savior. You're going to accept the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the gospel of the kingdom was related to that kingdom proclamation of that time. Today, the gospel is the gospel of the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty in full, and the only way to apply that to your life is to trust in him as Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. It excludes works. It excludes religious activity. It includes all the good and wonderful things that we do. There's only one option, and that is to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what he said to Martha. He said, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He didn't say, do you believe, and you're going to change your life. He didn't say, did you believe, and you're going to go to the right church. He said, believe. Ninety-five times John says in the gospel that the only condition for eternal life is to believe. And that's the core of the Christian life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to see the remarkable fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy and fulfillment, the specificity of the Old Testament prophecies in terms of it, and in terms of their exact fulfillment in the New Testament, the miraculous uh, conception and birth of John the Baptist, the preparation uh, that he had and the role that he had in the proclamation of the kingdom as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and a recognition in Jesus' answer that that blessed is the one who is not offended by the gospel. And that's the issue, that if there's anyone who hears this message, who is uh, wants to know about eternal life, wants to go to heaven, that rather than react to the cross, they need to accept the cross and not be scandalized by the cross. God knew exactly what he was doing in paying the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray for each one of us that, like John the Baptist and so many of their disciples at that time, we too might face persecution, resentment, resistance, hostility. We never know how far that might go. And the only way to prepare for that is to know your word, learn to walk with you in times of comfort, that we may be prepared to walk with you in times of adversity. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.